Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing on with our Christmas series. I don't know about you, but one of the things I, I love whenever I'm watching a movie or reading a book is a really good twist ending. I, I love it. When, when there's something that, that suddenly comes and, and it's, it's twisting the whole story, suddenly, you know, shocking, reveal, whatever, whatever it happens to be, I, I enjoy that good storytelling. Now, it has to be a good twist. There's lots of bad ones where you kind of read it and you're thinking, I feel like the author ran out of ideas. And suddenly this character just now needs to be a bad guy to keep you know, some sort of drama going, right? There's lots of bad ones. But the good ones, especially, is when there's actually hints all throughout the story of what's going to happen. And when the twist kind of comes, everything clicks into place, right? You go, oh, that's how it's all coming together. I love those kinds of stories. Uh, a good example of that is a movie called The Prestige, if any of you have seen it. Uh, It's about two sort of rival magicians. So there's lots of tricks and things all going on uh, between them. And it has a wonderful, wonderful twist ending so that if you go back and watch the movie, you'll actually see the twist all the way through. They, They actually have it right there in front of you on screen the whole time. And unless you're really looking for it, you won't notice it. After the fact, you realize how all the pieces are coming together. I love those stories, and in one sense, and we don't usually think of it, our Bible works very much the same way, right? Jesus is very much a twist ending to the Bible. No one was really expecting Jesus when he finally showed up, and yet when we look at who he is and what he does, everything actually does click into place, We realize that everything that was going on throughout the Old Testament, all these thousands of years of of God's work and getting his people ready, was all getting them ready for what Jesus would eventually do. Now, in a lot of times, we as sort of Christians, we we approach things sort of from this New Testament perspective. We, We know about Jesus. That's often our starting place. But we have to remember every once in a while that that if we start with Jesus, we're kind of starting at the end of the story. Right? We're starting at the twist ending. And so today, as we're going to read our story, Matthew, as he writes this Christmas account, he's going to draw us back in a big way to everything that God has been doing. And so we're going to have to have a very big picture view of what God has been doing for hundreds and thousands of years through the people of Israel, leading up to ultimately what Jesus is coming to do. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through our passage, but we're going to be jumping back in time, back in what God has done a couple of times to fully understand here what Jesus is doing. So if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read our, our passage this morning. And so if you're able, let me invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 12. This is written of the wise men who visited Jesus. It says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's as far as we're going to read this morning. You may be seated. Bit of a somber text as we come here into Christmas. But what we're doing here is we're picking up our story right from where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at the story of the wise men coming to visit Jesus. And it's this really beautiful picture of ultimately what Jesus is going to yet do. Jesus as a king being worshipped by people from all over the world, from different countries coming to worship at Jesus' feet. But as we saw last week, when these wise men showed up in Israel, they actually didn't know where to go. They didn't know where to find Jesus exactly, and so they just showed up in the capital city, and they just talked to the king who was reigning at the time, a man by the name of Herod the Great. And even as we saw last week, Herod is an incredibly paranoid and violent man. Not a great combination to walk up and say, hi, we're here to see the new king. But that's exactly what they do. And so they don't quite realize what they've done, but inadvertently they've set up this now series of events that's taking place here where Herod is going to try and snuff out this new king. However... We read last week and we read just again this morning, an angel of the Lord comes to these wise men and says, don't go back to see Herod. Herod had tried to get them, okay, you guys go and you find this new king, you come back, I will worship him with you, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, he's not. He's going to try and kill this new king. And so an angel tells these wise men, all right, take off by a different direction. So they do. But of course, an angel then has to show up and tell Joseph the same thing. You now need to get out of here and flee off to Egypt. And here in this passage, what we see is two major fulfillments, right? Matthew here is quoting from two passages in the Old Testament. And he's saying, actually, Jesus is fulfilling both of these texts. And actually, if if you know your Old Testament, these are the two biggest moments of God working salvation through the people of Israel. These are the two greatest moments in the Old Testament, the exodus and the exile. These two huge cataclysmic moments. And Matthew's whole point is, those were foreshadowings. They were previews of ultimately what Jesus had come to do. Jesus isn't copying what the Israelites did. In fact, the Israelites were foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do. And so actually what we're going to see here is that Jesus is the better redeemer. He is the better restoration as he actually deals with our sins completely. And so as we walk through this passage, that's really what I want us to see here this morning. And what we're going to see is actually we are the ones who need that redemption. We are the ones who need that restoration. So let's walk through this passage, let's kind of work through what's happening, and then we'll kind of jump back to see what's Matthew talking about, what are these big things that he's drawing us to see. And the first thing we need to see is Jesus is the better redeemer. Verse 13, it says, now when they had departed, these wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right? God sends an angel of the Lord to go and talk to Joseph. Joseph, get up and start going because Herod is coming after you guys. He is looking to put you to death. And so or Joseph gets up, he takes Mary and Jesus, and they're going to flee to Egypt. Right? This was, in many ways, the perfect spot. It was just south of where they were. They just needed to run down. It, was, it had a large Jewish population. Right? There's a big community there of Jewish people so they could blend in. But more importantly... It was outside of Herod's jurisdiction, right? Herod had no control in Egypt, and so he can't get to them, and so they, they run immediately down to Egypt. Verse 14 says, He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So I love what, what Joseph does here. God comes to him and says, Hey, you need to go now, and Joseph does it. He doesn't hesitate, he doesn't wait, he doesn't say, well, God, how do I know if I really should be running at this moment? No, he gets up and he goes in the middle of the night, grabs his wife and kid and says, we are moving now. You know, we, we actually hear so little of Joseph. Joseph is in the Bible for very, a very short amount of time. By the time Jesus' public ministry shows up, and that's where most of our gospel accounts are focused, Joseph is gone. Most likely he, he dies at some point in between now and then. But actually what little bit we get of Joseph shows us actually an incredible man of faith. Right? God comes to him and says, you need to run, and he runs immediately. Right? He doesn't hesitate when he hears God's word and acts quickly to save his family. They flee down to Egypt and they are safe there. Right? We're told they stay there until, the, uh, until Herod dies. We know that's somewhere around 4 to 6 AD. And so likely it was a couple of years that they were spending down in Egypt, kind of waiting it out until it was safe for them to actually return. And in one sense, it was kind of the, the perfect spot for them to hide out. Outside of reach, but not too far. They could blend in with a community and they would be safe there. But actually, as, as we kind of read through, we realize God has a much bigger plan in mind. God has a much bigger reason for sending Jesus, Mary, and Joseph down into Egypt. In fact, this is some of the, the foreshadowing that we've already gotten earlier in our Bibles. In fact, if you remember all the way back to the book of Genesis, first book in our Bible, when we, when we have Jacob and his family, Right? This is the, the first family of the nation of Israel, the very first one. And what happens? Well, they're in the land of Israel, don't own it yet. There's a famine. What do they do? Well, they go down to Egypt to be safe there. God has a place for them to be safe and actually to dwell in Egypt. God had a far greater plan for what was happening. But Matthew tells us here in verse 15, this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now most likely if you have read your Bibles, if you know a little bit of what's gone on in the Old Testament, you probably know Egypt is not a great place to be. It's because when the people of Israel end up in Egypt, they st stay there for about 400 years. 400 years, they, they grow, they multiply, they become a massive nation in Egypt, so much so that the Egyptians become more and more afraid of them. They enslave the Israelites, put them to hard labor, and in fact, by the end of it, they're actually so afraid that they 
cause a genocide of children. In fact, very similar to what we're about to read in our own text here this morning. People of Israel are, are trapped now in Egypt. They are stuck. They are enslaved. They are helpless to get themselves out. And they begin crying out, God, will you not save us? Will you not redeem us out of this slavery? And so God sends a redeemer. Right? Redemption is the language of actually taking someone out of slavery. Moses comes to free the people of Israel out of slavery. It's where we get all of the, the main story of, of, of Exodus. Right? The ten plagues that God sends against Egypt to let his people go. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, go, get out of here. Leave me be. And they start walking towards the Red Sea and Egypt says, nope, we're changing our mind. And they come after them with their army. They're stuck at the Red Sea and God parts the waters, opens the way for his people and they walk across dry land and as Pharaoh tries to follow, God crashes the waters down. God redeems his people out of Egypt. Right? It's this grand moment of, of redemption, of salvation that God works in the people of Israel. In fact, they were to remember this for all of their generations, what God had done for them. But what I find so interesting here is that Matthew doesn't quote from the book of Exodus. In fact, he doesn't even quote from anything that Moses wrote. Matthew here is quoting from the book of Hosea. Now, most of you, I'm going to guess, are going, okay, <laughs> means nothing. Hosea lived hundreds, hundreds of years after all the events of Exodus. He, he lived he, in the land of Israel. After God rescues them out of Egypt, he gives them the promised land, and they are dwelling there for a long time before Hosea shows up on the scene. He was a prophet to speak to the people, right? Very notably known for marrying a prostitute. That's a different story for another time, all right? But Hosea here is looking back at the Exodus. And that's actually what Matthew wants to point us to. In fact, if I can quote what was originally said here in Hosea chapter 11, I believe only verse 1 is on the screen, but I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. I could probably spend a long time un unpacking that passage, but, but really the main point is, as Hosea now looks back at this exodus, looks back at Israel's history, he says, God called us out of Egypt, but we did not follow him. God took them out of slavery, but they were still enslaved nonetheless. Yeah, they didn't have physical shackles on their hands anymore, but they were still bound and serving all of these other gods. They weren't actually free. And actually, I think the whole point of the Exodus that we are to understand as we look back at it, at this grand moment of God's redemption and bringing his people out of slavery is to realize they needed something better. Yeah, they were out of slavery in Egypt, but they weren't free. They were still stuck and continuing in their sin. In fact, I think that's what Matthew intends for us to understand here. When Jesus comes, Matthew's whole point is, Jesus is the better redeemer that they had been waiting for. 
They were out of the physical slavery, but what they needed was to get out of the grasp of sin. And see, here's why it matters for us, because actually that's what we need as well. I'm going to guess most of us have never really been enslaved. We don't really know what that's like, and yet all of us deal with this same enslavement to sin. We're not physically trapped, but we are stuck. Even if we can't see it, right? We assume that because we don't have, you know, chains on our wrists, that therefore we're free. I can do whatever I want. All you have to do is look at, well, someone who's an addict, right? Addicts can sometimes even get clean, and yet they're still not even free. They'll be looking back and saying, oh, that's all I want to go to. People will say things like, well, I could stop at any time. Have you tried? Actually, sometimes we can't. Paul, I think, puts it so well in the book of Romans. Romans chapter seven, he writes, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, every time I want to do something right and good, all I find is that every time I am pulled back by sin, evil, I'm not actually free. I need a redeemer. I need someone who's going to deal with the sin in my life, who will free me from being trapped under sin. And that is exactly what Jesus comes to do. Matthew's whole point is Jesus is the better redeemer because he actually deals with our sin. But that brings us then right to our second point, and that is actually to see the problem of our sin. See, being trapped in sin isn't really a big deal if sin isn't a big deal. It's only a problem if sin is a problem. And I think we can really easily get into this headspace of saying, well, you know what? My sin is not a big deal. I have lots of ways to kind of justify my own actions. I am not that bad of a sinner. It's a white lie. I just lose my temper a little bit. Right? I, I only go after people who really deserve it. I just do it to, to relieve some stress. It's only because I haven't eaten today or I haven't slept enough or because things haven't gone my way at work. We have lots and lots of different excuses for why we act the way that we act. Convincing ourselves that the sins we commit aren't really because we're bad people. They're just little flaws. And by the way, it's not hurting anyone. There's people who are far worse, right? Look at Herod. He's horrible. And in one sense, I'm glad. I'm glad we're not sinning in the same way that Herod is because it's true. Herod is a picture of what happens when sin is let to reign and rule completely. In fact, I, I think that's what we're supposed to see here. Right? Look back at our passage with me. Verse 16. It says, Then Herod when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. It's a horrific moment. Herod, in his his paranoia, in in his 
vengeance, in his bloodlust, sends soldiers to go and execute children in a tiny rural town just outside of, uh, just outside of Jerusalem. He's so paranoid in his life that actually the, the, the deaths of a couple dozen children doesn't even seem to really bother him at this point. Right? Sin has grown so large in his life that it is ruling and it is causing death everywhere. Last, or last week we, we looked at the fact that he even murdered his own children. The death of someone else's certainly didn't bother him. Soldiers marched into Bethlehem, this tiny town, and killed, this chil- killed these children. If there is any picture that shows you the horror and disgust of sin left unchecked, it is this. This should be disturbing to us. And I praise God that our sin isn't quite the same way that God has restrained us. Praise God. But do not miss the fact that this is what our sin will become. See, as sin grows more and more, it brings death more and more. James writes about sin in this way. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, we, we, we often want to excuse our sin. Well, it's not that bad. All we're really saying there is the cancer hasn't spread that much. The disease isn't that bad. It, it's only affecting a few parts of my life. Let, let's just let it go. It's no big deal. The fact that the disease isn't killing us at the moment doesn't change the fact that it will. So I remember when my grandfather was diagnosed with leukemia, he was healthy. In fact, he, he, was in good, he was in good health, good spirits, good mental health, everything. He, he looked fine for three whole years. He was fine. And then we got a call. He was in the hospital. And two weeks later, he had passed away. Yeah, yeah things can look really good on the outside, but inside is working death. Our sin might not look like anything yet. It might not be a problem, but it doesn't mean we are any less enslaved or any less in danger. Our sin is always a problem. Whether it breaks out like Herod's and causes untold destruction, whether it stays hidden and it eats away at us from the inside, sin brings death. I had one professor... He was a counseling professor. He said, no affair has ever begun naked in a bed. It's true. Affairs always begin, usually in your mind. A few thoughts that are left unchecked lead to a few actions that are just a little bit outside of where they should be, which leads to more and more. Sin grows until it will bring death. So what should we learn from this? First of all, for us to be enslaved under sin is a massive problem because sin brings forth death, death in our relationships, death in ourselves, and ultimately it is the death of our relationship with God. Sin's greatest problem is not just that it's going to cause problems around us or even in us, it causes a problem between us and God. And I don't just mean that, you know, God... God and me, we're not on speaking terms right now. That's not what I'm talking about. 
Right? Actually, actually, sin brings death in the fact that we are justly under judgment for it. That actually our sins will extend past this life and we will stand before the judgment seat of God. Our sin is such a big deal that God is going to deal with our sin in judgment. And actually, we're not going to have any excuse. So what we really need What we really need is someone to get us out of being trapped under sin. And we really need someone who's going to deal with the punishment for our sins. But here's the good news. Jesus is better. He is this better redeemer who deals with our enslavement to sin. And he is the better restoration. Once again, Matthew here is going to quote from an Old Testament passage. Verse 17, he says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel was weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is not exactly the prophecy that you really want to have a greater fulfillment, right? We're not looking for for greater weeping or a greater thing, but Matthew here is choosing this one very carefully. See, he understands that what happens after the Exodus, right? We, we looked at it. People are brought into the land of Israel. They, they live there. God gives them his law, says, hey, here's how you are to act. But if you know the story, they don't follow him even at all. There's a few high moments, but they're mostly low. They don't do what God calls them to do, and God warns them sin has consequences. There's going to be a consequence if you keep doing this. And so God is patient for hundreds and hundreds of years. God waits and waits to give them a chance to turn back. But eventually he brings in other nations to actually wipe them out. The weeping that's talked about here is as Jeremiah watches the consequences of their sin unfold. God sends Babylon and he wipes out the nation of Judah and drags them off into exile. That's exactly what Jeremiah is talking about in this passage. But see, so often when the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament, they'll usually just give us a line or two. Not usually very much. They'll give us a couple lines, but what they're expecting is that we know the context. And so I'm just going to expect that all of you know the context of Jeremiah. Okay, maybe you don't. This is what it says. Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back to the, uh, from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See, God shows them, yes, you are going to undergo this judgment for sin, but there is still hope beyond it. One day they will be restored to their land. The weeping was not without hope at the end. God will restore his people. One day they would be in a right relationship with God. Actually, if you know the story of what happens, people of Judah, uh, they're carried off into exile. They're there for 70 years. 
but God brings them back. And there is this grand rejoicing that happens as they return back to the land and they rebuild the temple, but there's also this moment of sorrow mixed in with all the rejoicing. Why? Their relationship was still broken. Sin was still separating them from God. But see, I think here Jeremiah knew exactly what was happening. He knew that was there. And so in the very same passage, just a few verses later, this is what he writes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. See, the people of Judah, they had returned to the land of Israel, but they were still waiting for this restoration. They were waiting for that moment when their sins could be forgiven, when they would be restored to a right relationship with God, no longer under his wrath, and the weeping could finally stop. And Matthew says, that is what is happening in Jesus. When Jesus arrives, that's actually the end of the weeping because God's restoration has begun. Jesus is this better restoration that is coming because he not only is going to deal with our enslavement to sin, but he is going to pay the penalty that we might be right with God. And that is exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what he does when he goes to the cross. He puts an end to weeping over sin by taking our sin on himself. Jesus dies and the death he dies is in our place. He takes that punishment, the death our sins rightfully would have borne. Jesus stood in our place. And when he did so, he broke sin's enslavement over us and he paid the price that we can be right with God. We could be redeemed out of slavery and restored to a right relationship. In Jesus' death, the power of sin was broken. In his death, the payment for sin was made in full. There is nothing left, nothing more for us to contribute or do. There's no right or work that we have to accomplish. No, Jesus has done it all. In him alone, we are restored to this right, loving, good, beautiful, wonderful relationship with God so that anyone who trusts in him Anyone who places their faith in Jesus will be saved. See, if you trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf, your debt's paid. It's done. You have the favor and the love of God forever. See, the restoration of Jesus is better. The redemption of Jesus is better because it deals with our greatest problem and it will last forever. So what are we to do with this? I think first thing is that we need to come and face what are we going to do with Jesus? Do we trust him? Do we actually trust that Jesus and him alone is able to save us, to make us right with God? Have we placed our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins and the freedom to follow after him? 
It's the most important question you're going to answer this Christmas, this year, in your life. What are you going to do with Jesus? Do you trust in him? See, I know a lot of you have already said yes. I praise God. You are loved by God. So let me ask you, are you willing to live like Jesus is better? Are you willing to live like Jesus has actually rescued you out of your sin? See, I think too often we fall back into this pattern of living like we're still back in Egypt, still back under the enslavement of our sin. Instead of realizing God has actually freed us, set us free, that we can follow after him fully and completely. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is better. Let us live like he is better. Let us... Let that be shown in how we live our lives. I know none of us are going to be perfect. None of us are going to be completely free from sin until we come to Jesus, until he returns again. But if Jesus has set us free, let us live like we are free. If Jesus has forgiven our sins, let us live like our sins are forgiven, like we are actually loved by God Most High, that the King of all the universe looks on us with favor. It changes how we go throughout our day. It changes how we view trials around us. It's not a problem that will never be solved. It's simply another moment where we'll see God's salvation at work. When God loves us more than anyone, we don't need to seek after all the affection and attention of others. Our Heavenly Father loves us and knows us. We treat others well because God has treated us well. We show mercy and forgiveness because God has shown us mercy and forgiveness. Our calling is to live like Jesus is better than everything that has ever come before, to share more and more about what Jesus has done in our lives. We live like we owe sin nothing because we don't. We live like we owe God everything because we do. We do owe Jesus everything. He is our Savior, our Redeemer, our Restoration. The entirety of the Old Testament is God getting us ready. It's getting us, the people of Israel, and everyone who reads his word ready for what Jesus is going to do. It's hints, it's sneak peeks, it's previews to what is still coming so that when Jesus arrives, we would see how much better the salvation of Jesus truly is. The better Redeemer, the better restoration rescued us out of sin, paid the penalty fully in our place. For all those who place their faith in him, we are forgiven and loved. Let us live like Jesus is better. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for, for your word and how you have revealed to us the salvation of Jesus how you have shown us through, through many different actions and, and things that you have done. You have shown us your great salvation. Lord, you have shown us our great need of you. You've shown us even the problem of our sin. Lord, I, I pray this morning, Lord, would we not be comfortable with our sin? Would we not simply brush it off as if the disease is no big deal? But Lord, would we look to you and bend the knee Father, would we confess our sins and turn in repentance and trust in what Jesus has accomplished? 
Father, I pray, would we live like Jesus is better? Would we live as though everything has gotten better because of what Jesus has done? Because that's exactly right. Father, I pray, would that be reflected in our lives? Would it be reflected in our attitudes? Would it be reflected in our relationships? Would it be reflected in the words we speak to honor you? Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.